Um, we, uh, we are continuing cruising through uh, this series in the book of Jonah, and uh, you'll re- recall, I'm trying to say this every week because I think it's just a, it's really a bigger thing, that, that I kind of view series like this as like re- a rescue effort uh, from the, the vegetation, the VeggieTales factor that has overgrown uh, some of these really familiar stories of the Bible that were mediated to us through maybe when some of us were kids or at least probably through children's media of some kind. And so, you know, I think what I'm rediscovering and, and you know, as I talk with people, you know, this, the story of Jonah is very much a story written to adults, and you have to be an adult to, to really get what's going on in this story because it's surprisingly sophisticated and actually really disturbing and challenging. And it's this, it's this comic satire story of this rebellious religious hypocrite who, uh, who runs from his own God and he, uh, his sin and selfishness turns him into, uh, as, as we saw last week, what I called a rela- relational wrecking ball. And just ruining his sin is spilling over his life into the lives of other people, and he's so tuned out to God and to his own emotions and life, he can't even see what he's doing. He's a wrecking ball. And so uh, where we ended the story last week was that uh, he's, he's thrown over the side of the boat, and he's sinking down into the depths of the sea. And uh, if Jonah were a one-chapter story, if the story ended right there, you would think, this, he's done. <laughs> like, he's dead. This is a tragic, a tragic story. And uh, we are going to pick up right at this moment where you think he's dead. Like you would never read any story that ended and a huge fish swallowed him in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. You know, you're supposed to think, oh, bummer. <laughs> That's what a horrible way to die. But, but the story doesn't end right there. It surprisingly, it surprisingly takes this twist. And so this is the crazy the crazy thing that we're going to see this week, Jonah has this encounter with his own death. He faces, he, he, faces, he looks down the mouth, literally and metaphorically, of death itself. So it swallows him up. And so you're thinking, uh, you know, this is a guy, he's getting what's coming to him. God's allowing him to, to deal with the consequences of his decision. But then it's exactly at this, this was the gospel in the story, that it's right when he hits bottom, and he's swallowed up by the consequences of his silly, foolish, selfish behavior. The God of Israel turns that vehicle of death into this bizarre vehicle of grace that all of a sudden gives him another chance at life by opening his eyes to what's happening. And so what you end up with in this strange story is, I think, one of the most kind of arresting images of any story in the whole Bible. And it's, we're kind of, we'll work our way through the story again, chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord provided this huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and from the inside of the fish, he's not dead. What is he doing? He's he's composing a beautifully intricate Hebrew poem (laughs) that represents his prayer to God, which is, I'm sure, what you would be doing if you were in these circumstances, right? This is so bizarre. Now, if, you've, if you have just been hearing this story for so long, it's not bizarre to you anymore. Like, this is really, wake up. You know? this, what a strange story. A man, I mean, you, this, there's, obviously he's surrounded 
Imagine it's actually quite tight surroundings, whatever. There's like squid beaks and other like things, whatever, you know, he's floating around with. And obviously no oxygen there. And, and it's this crazy image. Now, remember, this, this fits with the storytelling style of, of the story so far. And this image especially, uh, I think, raises the question for us of like, whoa, what kind of story is this? And I'm not, I'm gonna, not going to revisit and unpack that whole thing again. Spent quite a bit of time on that, that in the first message, and you can go back online and listen to that again. But remember, the big picture was uh, that among uh, even Orthodox, just there's a wider spectrum, but just Orthodox Christian t scholars, teachers, and so on, there's two views. One is that the author is putting forward this story with a claim that it's his historical narrative. And this part of the story, of course, then would have to come from some kind of personal testimony of Jonah himself and his his experience. That's one, that's one view. The other view, also held by Orthodox, Bible is God's word, believing you know, uh, scholars and teachers and so on, is that the author does not intend that. The author expects us to see this story as a parable and has left all kinds of clues, taking a known historical figure, putting them in a parable setting. And so I won't unpack that anymore. You can go listen to first message. There's strengths and weaknesses of each view. And uh, they're both held by lots of different people that I, that I respect. Everybody, regardless of your view, agrees on this comic book feel of the story style. And that everything in the story is over the top and you have these stereotyped characters, but everyone is the opposite of their stereotype and how they behave. And everything's extreme, big and intense and whoa. That's Jonah. And surely this image fits right into that. A man composing beautiful poetry cramped in the confines of a fish's stomach. I mean, that's, you know? And so this is not about like, oh, if you think it's a parable, you don't really believe in miracles or something. No, it's ridiculous. So we're a community whose foundation is based on the conviction that God raised Jesus from the dead. That is, in my mind, far more difficult of a thing to believe than a guy can survive in a fish's stomach. You know what I'm saying? And so this has nothing to do with that. This has to do with submitting myself to the scriptures, not making them into something that I think they ought to be, but allowing the author to shape, to tell me what kind of story he's telling. And whatever your view is, it's a crazy story. And you're supposed to go, whoa, what, what's happening here? And so here's, here's what I want to do. I want to I fixate on the fish a little bit more. Even though I said the first week, the fish is not the thing. I want to fixate on it because it's such a big part of what we associate with the book. And I just want to ask the question this way. What on earth does the author of Jonah, what does he expect us to see in this image, in this moment of the story, of a man swallowed up by a fish because of his own stupid sin and then praying, as we're going to see, a prayer of repentance and transformation from within the fish. What would the first readers of this story, what, how would they understand the meaning of this? And so I'm going to tackle it in two steps. One is, what is like the meaning of, of this image and this part of the story in its biblical, ancient kind of setting? Then ask the question, what then, how does it speak God's word to, to us? And so here's, here's a problem that we have with the Bible. We have lots of problems with the Bible, by the way. So it's, it, it's a difficult book to read. And because it's a difficult book to read, I think most of us get into this mode of like reading the Bible and a, a not getting it, not getting it. Ooh, that's a cool sentence. I like that one. I'm going to make cross-stitch out of it and put it on my wall or something. You know? and, and then like, okay, move on. Okay, don't get it, don't get it, don't get it. Okay, that's a cool bumper sticker or something. You know, like that's how 
That's pretty much how most Christians operate with the Bible. And what that leads to is a view of the Bible that it's just this collection of kind of individual, self-contained, cool little sentences that I use for personal inspiration or to warm my heart or something. And so, but here's the problem with that is the problem is that if, if you begin to just read the Bible as a little grab bag of, of individual sentences that tell me God's will or do this, you can find a sentence in the Bible by its, if you just take it out and read it by itself, to say almost anything. You can make the Bible say anything you want if you read the Bible like that. And so the first rule, this is not even a religious thing, this is just the first rule of being a, a good listener of any act of communication is context. And so what, is a, what on earth does a story about a rebellious Israelite prophet getting swallowed up by a fish and then praying and then getting vomited out? Like what, like what does that mean? Well, it depends on the context. If you just read the book like never reading any other part of the Bible and it thought the book of Jonah just fell out of heaven, then I don't know, you'd say it's a story about like you should obey your God and, you know, I don't know, learn poetry just in case you ever have time in the fish's belly or something. <laughs> but you would, it's just kind of bizarre. And so what we have to do, first of all, is just say what, what is the context of this? The same exact word, the same story, or even the same sentence can have many different meanings depending on the context. One silly example and then uh, a more serious example. So here's a silly example, just to illustrate the point so we're all on the same page. That if you treat the Bible like a grab bag of sentences, you can make it say anything you want. So say you're sitting in, in any of the 183 coffee shops that are in Portland or whatever, it's probably more, I don't know. So you'd be sitting in, you're sitting in one and you're reading or something and there's um, a woman and another woman and, and another woman, something, sitting, having coffee next to you, and you, all of a sudden, you just tune into their conversation when you hear the words, I'm going to kill him. I just know I'm going to kill him. Now, how are you supposed to react to something like that, right? So you could, I hope you would be alarmed, first of all, right? just to, to some degree, and that you might have a legal responsibility to do something about what you just heard. So why? Because how, do you, how are you supposed to understand that sentence? Well, knowing you just dropped into the conversation, it could be that you are witnessing the plot of a murder. That's entirely possible, right? That, and so you need to intervene, you need to do something. That's possible. It could be that she just came from like a, a knock-down, drag-out, you know, fight or argument with, uh, with her husband or with her boyfriend or something like that. And so she's speaking metaphorically about what she's going to go verbally slaughter him or something like that, I don't know, or like, you know, really, really have it out with him. It could, it could have nothing to do with human beings. The hymn could refer to a dog, for example, right? It could be that she is really angry at her dog, just poop or peed on the carpet. It could be that it's actually, she's not angry at her dog, she's nervous about her dog, and she's like really insecure about being able to care for it, and I just know I'm going to kill him, I don't, I'm not going to be able to, <laughs> I think so, there's, there's option number four. So it's a silly illustration, but you guys get where I'm going here. The other, I try to think, the other one that maybe your brain would go to is you're like, maybe she's a fiction writer and she's processing killing off one of her novel's main characters or something like that, I don't know. So just, you probably think of a couple more. I'm sure some of you could think of many more, but here's the same exact words, five very different meanings. And how do you know, how do you know which is the right one? 
well, you need to say, excuse me, this is really awkward. <laughs> like, you know, so I, I might have a legal obligation, what you're saying, just, are you actually plotting murder here? And like, she's going to tell you, you know what I mean? But, but anyway, you, so you, you need to get to know her, her story, what, what, where did you just come from? That's context. And it's the same exact thing with the Bible, in any sentence or passage that you read. And so we, let's just ask the question here. If the book of Jonah didn't just fall from out of heaven, it occurs in a context. And what is that context? And we asked the question, the very first thing we read, the first sentence of the book is, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord comes to what kinds of people in the Bible? Prophets. It's <laughs> good. I'm sure we did learn something in week one, so that's okay. So prophets, prophet. Jonah occurs among the prophets of, of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament. That is its context. And so you have to back up and you just have to say, what are the prophets about? Now, if you've tried to read the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, I'm sorry. I'm sure that was a very challenging experience because there's some of the most difficult books of the Bible to read, I think. But the, the, what they're about, ultimately, the basic plot line, is really easy. And it, I would normally draw this on a whiteboard, but I always got lazy and thought PowerPoint was easier. So, so here's the basic idea. The prophets... It's, it's the story of Israel. God redeems his people out of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. He, he brings them uh, into a covenant relationship with himself. He gives them his instruction, his Torah, about how they are to live as a holy witness to the nations. And so he brings them into the promised land. And how do they do at living in a covenant relationship with the God who redeemed them? Yeah, not so great, not so great. And so this is where the prophets step onto the scene, is that the people of Israel abandoned Yahweh, they give their allegiance to other gods um, or, or idolize uh, things that they turn into gods, whether that's like military uh, power or wealth or something. And it leads them to injustice and sin and abandonment and faith, faithlessness to Yahweh. And so the prophets come onto the scene. All the books of the prophets, this is what they're about. They accuse Israel of their sin and their faithlessness. And they warn Israel that if they don't turn their ways, they're going to deal with the consequences of these decisions, which is ultimately, the ultimate consequence was uh, the big bad empire of Babylon sweeping in uh, and besieging the city of Jerusalem, capturing the city and hauling is Israelites off into exile. And that's a huge theme in, in the prophets. Here's what you're doing. Here's how you've abandoned the covenant. Here's what's going to happen if you don't turn. But... Yahweh's commitment to his promises is, is even stronger than Israel's rebellion and sin. And he, God, the prophets always look forward to this time on the other side of, of Babylon that he's going to preserve a remnant and continue Israel's story, a new future out the other side. There you go. That's the prophets. So now you don't have to read them. <laughs> you should read them. But, they're, but this is basically what they're all about. Jonah occurs among the prophets. And the prophets are about a rebellious covenant people of God who are faithless and abandon their God, suffer the consequences, but God's grace redeems them and brings them out the other side. Hmm. I wonder if I can think of a story that sounds... You know what I mean? It's like, duh. <laughs> That's the story of Jonah. And so while the other books of the prophets are collections of words poetic words of the prophets that are about this, the book of Jonah is the only story among the prophets, a story about a prophet, and it's exactly this storyline. So, okay, that one's for free. 
<laughs> so this is even more interesting then. When, when the books of the prophets, if you, if you really immerse yourself in them, and, and they develop metaphors, they're all writing poetry, they develop metaphors and poetic images to talk about Israel's sin, about what the exile was going to be like, about rescue and restoration. And one of the earliest prophets, for example, the prophet Hosea, he developed a whole bunch of real stock, powerful poetic imageries to talk about this story. And just here's one kind of random sampling from chapter 8. You guys will see, see, you'll see the connections here very quickly. So he begins, he says, Israel's, they broke, this is Yahweh speaking through Hosea the prophet. Israel has broken my covenant. They've rebelled against my instruction. They cry out to me, our God, we acknowledge you. But they've rejected what is good. Now just, I'm mean, just stop right there. So you have Israelites crying out, yes, we acknowledge our God, Yahweh, but actually they've rejected him and rejected what is good. Does that sound like anybody you know from Jonah chapter 1? <laughs> right? right? So, so what's going to result then? An enemy will pursue him. Here's more examples of their faithlessness. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. And so what's coming to Israel because of their sin? And so Israel is swallowed up. Hmm. Swallowed up. Now she's among the nations like something nobody wants. They've sold themselves among the nations, so now I'll gather them. They'll begin to waste away under the oppression of a mighty king. Now just look at how the poetry works right here. What's he talking about? He's saying a nation is coming, a mighty king is coming, it's going to take over Israel as a result of their you know, foolish decisions that he just talked about. And so what's the metaphor that he uses? It's like they're going to be swallowed up. Hmm. Now, Hosea was one of the earliest of the, the prophets, and, and lots of the prophets who came after him often picked up some of his images or picked up lines that Hosea used and developed the metaphors even more. So this is, really, this is a good one. So Jeremiah, for example, when he's describing Babylon coming to town, look how he describes it. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured us. He's thrown us into confusion. He's made us like an empty jar, like a sea monster. He's swallowed us. He's filled his stomach with our precious things and then spewed us out. I mean, come on, come on, <laughs> right? So he's developing this image of God has raised up even or allowed this, uh, this beast to come and swallow up God's own people as a result of their faithlessness. Now, the prophets didn't only speak like this. This is the last passage I'll show you. Um, when... Uh, the book of Psalms, for example, we spent our summer in, it contains prayers and poems of like David and Solomon and other people who lived before the exile. But it includes a lot of poems that are written by people who are on the other side of exile. And so look at how this psalm, Psalm 124, looks backward on this story. And look, how, look, how, look at the metaphors they used. It says, if Yahweh, if the Lord had not been on our side, when people rose against us, they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger flared against us, the flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. Raging waters would have swept us away. So in other words, among the prophets and the poets of the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, the very common way to describe Israel's sin, 
They're, they're suffering the consequences, exile in Babylon, the restoration was used of like drowning in a flood or being swallowed by a great sea beast. And the author of Jonah comes along and he turns these parables into a narrative about one Israelite who through their life story and through their experience actually lives this whole story in, in uh, this narrative form before us. You guys with me here? In other words, the biblical author knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> and this image of being trapped, I think first and foremost in their readers' minds, they would have seen their own story as Israelites told through the story of Jonah. The story of their own faithlessness, their own suffering of the consequences, and then the big question mark then of, is God going to be faithful to redeem us out the other side? And that's what we're talking about today. Okay, you guys with me? How are you guys doing? Okay, that was a longer aside than I normally do, but because the fish is such a misunderstood item in the story, you now see the power of this image. Because what, here's what this is about, in, back into the story world of Jonah. So here's Jonah, and he's quite proud of himself. You know? So here he is, he's been able to run from Yahweh. Yeah, no one was able to do that before. And so here he is, you know, the breeze in his hair, you, know, you can just imagine him. And he's, a sa he's sailing for Tarshish, right? And he has, if you've ever you know, been on like the open sea, or something, just these wide open horizons, huge open space of his freedom. He's declared his autonomy from God, and here we go, wind in the hair. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, it all catches up with him. His, 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 his selfishness, his sin, it all catches up with him. And then it's like this great snowball effect. His decisions lead him down and down, down, down to the ship, down in, into sleep down into the ocean, and, and now all of a sudden he's, at, he's like at the bottom. He can't go any further, and it's the exact opposite of this wide open horizon. He's now like confined in the belly of the beast. And this belly of the beast is this image of being trapped in, in seasons of hardship or, or suffering or pain or confusion. And in Jonah's case, he's here, it's a mess of his own making. And so how do you, what do you do when you're here? <laughs> like, how do you pray through this? How do you process through it? And so really what this prayer is, is this is, this is an invitation for us to see Jonah's experience of praying through his hardship and his suffering. And the fact is, is this image of being swallowed up by the beast, this is such a powerful image in the story. Now, so Jonah's here as a result of his own decisions, right? So... So he, he doesn't have a lot to like, cry about. He can't blame anybody but himself. But God's people end up in the belly of the beast, not always as a result of their own decisions. You know? For example, uh, the book of Daniel. He's a pretty stand-up guy. <laughs> and here he is exiled. In, he's, he's exiled to Babylon because of his parents' sin and selfishness. So what do you do with that? How, how do you pray through when you're sitting in the belly of the beast when like, you, there's no like, discernible reason you can see it? It's actually someone else's sin that's spilled over into my own life. How do you do that? What do you do when you're trapped in the belly of the beast in, in life circumstances that are dark and that are confusing and you can't see that it's your fault and you can't pin it on anybody else? It's just a tragedy has hit. What do you do? And so these times of being in these dark, confined spaces... This is what this prayer, this is what this prayer is about. And so here's what I'd invite you to do. I think this is how this, this ancient biblical image speaks to us, is I would invite you as we go through the prayer 
to just use it as like a set of glasses to think about your own story. There might be some of you who uh, you're in one of these spaces right now, and you might be there because it's a mess of your own making. You might be there because someone else's foolishness has spilled over into your life, or there might be no reason that you can discern. You're just, your life has fallen apart and you don't know why. And so I just encourage you, we're going to go through the prayer and just use it as a way to think through your own experience and your own relationship to, to God. And how do you process through it? How are you guys doing? You guys with me? Okay. Let's, uh, let's jump into the belly of the beast. Verse 2. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord. And always remember, the Lord in all capital letters means uh, Yahweh in Hebrew. In my distress, I called to Yahweh, and he answered me from deep in the realm of the dead, or some of uh, your translations have Sheol, which uh, is just the Hebrew word for the grave, for, for the realm of the dead. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. I've kind of listed uh, the movements of the poem here on the screen behind me. We're going to kind of move through these different, the flow of the poem. And so the first thing that this hardship causes in his life is it causes him to cry out, to, to yell out for help. Again, and we might read that and we think, oh, yeah, it's yet another psalm crying out for help or something like that. But no, really, I mean, stop and think about this. And really, I would encourage you, can you find any moment in your past, there might be some of us here, where you literally had to cry out for help in a moment of danger? And if you've ever been in that experience where you, like, you, it, you're, it's out of control, you know, like, I can't do anything right now, and you're not ashamed because it's the only thing you have left to do, is to cry out. And if you haven't been in that experience, I'm not sure what to say. I don't wish it upon you. <laughs> but, uh, but some of us have been there. And actually, for me, ironically, not in a funny way, but uh, the one experience that my mind immediately goes to was my one experience of nearly drowning and a few years ago. And there was no shame <laughs> in calling out for help. And uh, the waves were crashing, and I, I was swimming... It, it was probably done. It kind of was a mess of my own making. But anyway, that's a story I don't need to tell. <laughs> Anyhow, nonetheless, I had to cry out for help. And it took two people getting involved in my mess to help get me out. But that, again, that's a different story. Here I am almost telling it, even though I'm trying to say I'm not going to tell it. Anyhow, I just, I'll never forget that. It's one of those things where, you know, you forget a lot about the day-to-day -day of your life. You never forget the day that you almost drowned and cried out for help, you know. And it's just this visceral experience of like, I got nothing. I, I need help. I have no resources right now to, to save myself. And so this hardship brings him to a place where he has to cry. We'll come back to that. But notice what he says about God here. He just says it, right? He just, you listened. You're listening. Now this is interesting because I think most of us, when we end up in seasons of life that are like this, where things are falling apart and we feel confused or alone or trapped in our life circumstances. Many of us, our default, it, you know, understanding what's happening is that God's not listening to me. That he's like nowhere to be found. He's abandoned me or something. And Jonah draws exactly the opposite conclusion. He says, I'm in this scenario where I have no help. Everything's like there's nothing left for it. I'm at the bottom and you're right there. 
he draws the conclusion that it's in precisely in those moments that God is closest and most involved and attentive. That's interesting. Why does he draw that conclusion? Let's keep going. Look at verse 3. Where all of a sudden this experience, it, it's actually heightening his awareness of God's presence. That's what happens right here. Verse 3, he says, You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me, all your waves and breakers, they swept over me. Now, just pause right here. This is super interesting. Whose waves are crashing over him? Who does he say? Who's the your? Your waves and breakers are doing me in right now. And who's the you? It's God. <laughs> but who threw him into the depths of... Now, this is very interesting. From chapter 1, who threw him over the side of the boat? The sailors. But who does he say here hurled him into the sea? It's Yahweh. It's God. Now, this, this, this is a hard pill for us to swallow. And this is, this is very disturbing. And some of us are going to get ticked off right now. And so, but that's okay. Read the book of Psalms. There's lots of people who are ticked off and frustrated and confused about how God is related, relates to their lives. So he, yes, of course, the sailors threw him over. But he sees that all of a sudden these circumstances that have brought him to the bottom where all he could do is cry out. He, he sees God's involvement and hand in it. Now, you have to stop and you have to think, well, what's happening in this story? So, so who ultimately is responsible for Jonah ending up in this whole mess? Is, is it God's fault that Jonah made stupid decisions? Is that God's responsibility, that Jonah made horrible decisions? What's the answer to that question? <laughs> no, of course not. God's not responsible for Jonah's sin. And, and so let's say you end up in the belly of the beast because of someone else's sin. So think of another biblical story, the story of Joseph and his brothers, where his brothers plot against him to kill him, and they decide to be merciful and instead just throw him into a pit and sell him into slavery, right? as if that's a really a better option. And so, and yes, of course, God providentially uses that whole story redemptively, but is God responsible for the brothers' sin that spilled over into Jonah's life? No. No, that's their, their moral responsibility. But yet Jonah sees that whether it's someone else's sin or whether it's his sin that lands him right here in this confined, difficult hardship, God's not biting his fingernails, that God's not surprised. And there, in fact, may be times, as Jonah's indicating, where God is the one who brought him into this experience of hardship because you hurled me here. Or that somehow it fits into God's providential plan which doesn't mean that God is the author of my circumstances, but it does mean that nothing here surprises him and that he is going to work this out redemptively for his purposes. Now, here's what's, cra here's what's crazy. And really, the, only, the, the best thing I know to title this is the, that brilliant title uh, from Sheldon von Hawkins' book, A Severe Mercy. And that's what Jonah wakes up to here. He wakes up to the fact that God is dealing him a severe mercy. And it's very severe. I mean, there's nothing... I mean, how much more severe can you get than drowning and being swallowed up by a huge fish? And he sees God's fingerprints all over it. It doesn't mean that God's responsible for his decisions, but it does mean that now that he's made those decisions, God is present with him, and God is not just going to be his little genie in the bottle that rescues him out of all of his problems. 
God is with him, but in a way that's different than, than many of us might feel comfortable with. And so here's really where this gets us. Is, here's why this is hard for us to hear. is because most of us, we have this default assumption that, that we invited God into our lives to give us smooth passage to our chosen destination, you know, and hopefully with a little comfort and security and safety along the way, right? And, and what stories like this or, or stories like uh, the story of Abraham and Isaac and so on in Genesis 22, God tests Abraham, what they show us is that, see, if your idea of God is that his greatest priority is to make you safe and comfortable and happy, if you have, hold that idea of that's who, who God is, then, I mean, I'll, I'll just save you the effort. Like, please become an atheist now. <laughs> because your whole life experience is going to expose how, how, how naive that view of God is. And that's not the God presented to us in the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, God's highest priority is to call a people to himself and to mold and shape their character so that they come to understand the truth of who they are as, as creatures made in the image of their creator and, and come to discover the, the truth that they're not God and that we make really poor captains of our own ship because we conveniently make the ship sail to whatever is like best, you know, for me, even if at the, ex at the expense of others, you know. And, and so what, in God's severe mercy, he, he may deal with us in ways that bring us to the end of ourselves. And we might hate him for it, but the paradox of, of God's severe mercy is this, is that it could be the best thing that ever happens to us. Because we discover the truth of how broken and selfish we are. We discover the truth of that I've been taking my life for granted as if like, I can just do whatever I want. And like the only reason I exist is because someone else made me. And I'm not the captain of my own ship. And it brings us to this place of dependence and humility. And that's a crazy place to be. And so I don't have prophetic authority, you know, to, to look at any scenario in, in your life or your past or something and say, oh, yes, that was a severe mercy or something. Like, I don't know that. And, and, and none of us has the, the insight to be able to say, yes, I can see what God was doing in that scenario in, in your life or, or, or my life. But what the scriptures are very clear is that there is no sin of my own, there is no sin of anybody else's that's beyond God's redemptive reach to, do, to use as an as as opportunity to shape me in a deep, deep way. And that is God's highest priority, to shape us into the image of his son, as Paul says it in Romans chapter 8. Again, that might tick you off, because that might mean you get, you get tossed overboard because of something stupid you did or something stupid someone else did, but, but there you go. How do you process through that? Let's keep going. It's verse 4. And verse 4, what did I say about verse 4? Oh, yes. Verse, verse 4 is where his hardship then brings him to see his, his need, his need for God. Look at what he says here. It's interesting. Verse 4, he says, I said, I have been banished from your sight, Yet, I will look again toward your holy temple. He's talking to himself right here. It's very interesting. It's like he's, he's saying, oh my gosh. I thought for a second that I really had gotten what I wanted. I wanted 
smooth passage to Tarshish and to run away from Yahweh and to get him out of my life. And then he sees where that lands him at, at the bottom. And then this is his forehead slap moment. He's like, I, um, I realize I thought I had lost it entirely. I thought God gave me fully what I wanted. And it was horrible. It was horrible. I thought I was banished from from you. you can see a shift in his priorities here. All of a sudden, the idea of going to Tarshish and being his own god and his own captain of his own ship all of a sudden seems like the worst thing possible. It's like, you know, you get what you always wanted and you realize that it is, hor- is horrible. It sucks in Tarshish. <laughs> it's not going to give you what you're really looking for in life. And so it's exactly at that moment that he realizes, oh my gosh, I was almost got what I wanted. I was almost banished from God's sight. He turns around. He says he looks to God's presence in his temple. All of a sudden, looking back and turning back to God becomes very attractive. And so this this is crazy. And you guys know how this experience goes. He runs from the God that he thinks is like the killjoy and just like telling me what to do, you know, and the commanding God or whatever. And then he sees where running from that God gets him because he actually was trying to give him life in the first place. And so it takes him to hit bottom before he realizes like, oh my gosh, it was the God of mercy who's been chasing me the whole time. And it's just that strange place and you know it in yourself or you know it in other people where there's just, there's a lot of people who just don't need God. And they don't need God because their, their ship's going pretty good for now. You know? And they may get to Tarshish, they may not, whatever. And, but at some point, we're all going to realize that getting what we wanted is not going to give us life. And, and so there's a lot of people out there who just, they're not interested in anything to do with Jesus. And you won't be able to convince them. There's nothing you can do to convince them. Except be that presence. <laughs> Be that presence in their life for when their ship goes down. And then all of a sudden, like, everything changes and coming to Jesus looks attractive now. That's what he's talking about here. And, and so he, he kind of goes over this moment again in even more depth. Look at verse 5, where he says, This experience made him realize that he not only needs God, that God is the only thing he has going for him. Look at verse 5. He says, The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. That's, that image has always made me chuckle. I don't know why. It's kind of a seaweed turban or something. So seaweed wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath. You can see all this image. Down, down, down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. Do these images or metaphors give you any hope that this is reversible? Like he's just, it's over, it's over, he's done. But then this little ski jump at the end. But you, Yahweh, my God, you brought my life up from the pit. And so you, maybe you've had uh, a friends who have had an experience like this, or you know someone who's, maybe you, have had a brush with, with death. Like with, you actually saw a circumstance happen and you're like, that could have been the end of my life right there. Or if you have spent time with anybody who's, who's uh, survived a serious, serious illness where their life was at stake. Those experiences in life have a way of just stripping away the clutter in your life. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? And, and it just all of a sudden, like what's most important in life gets very clear when you see the boundary line of your life and it's not very far away. 
And that's like what he's, what he's experiencing here. He realizes all of a sudden the only thing he has going for him is the fact that God is committed to him. Left to his own devices, he knows where he's going to end up. And so he's, the only thing I have going for me is the fact that God's committed to redeeming my life from, from something that I, I can't see any way out. And that's paradoxically the worst experience you could have but also the best experience you could have because you discover the truth of who you are, a, a frail human whose creator is, is turned to in mercy and grace and faithfulness, which is what motivates him to say what he says next as he, as he closes. This, he kind of turns the corner here, and he, he all of a sudden is emerging with this gratefulness out of this hardship. He says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Yahweh. My prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. So right at the moment, he's at the brink of death. And then all of a sudden, he has this very positive experience where he's like, and I'm, I remember Yahweh. And so in remembering in, in the Old Testament, it's a very common uh, theme that you recall all of the gifts and the goodness that Yahweh has shown towards you up, up to this point. And it's like when he was on his way to Tarshish, he was just totally was like ignoring all of the things that, that God had done for him, that God had given him life in the first place. And so all of a sudden, as he's at the brink of his own death, he realizes all of these amazing ways God has shown favor and mercy and grace to him and so on. And so here he is, he, he's having this prayer of remembrance and thanks. And where is he? Where, where is he? Where has he not left? <laughs> the belly of the fish. So he's in the, he's in the belly of the beast as he's having this real positive turn to gratefulness. Now that's crazy. <laughs> and some of us might think like, it's clearly a lack of oxygen. You know, at this point, like, is what, what on earth would generate gratefulness when you're in the midst of the circumstance? And again, this is this paradox. When you discover the truth of who you are, and that the only thing I've got going for me is God's merciful faithfulness to me to redeem me out of the mess of my own making or the mess of somebody else's making. When I, when I realized that, all of a sudden, it's like my life doesn't belong to me anymore in the first place. And, and as a Christian, this is even more true. He, he, he turns, he says, his prayer goes to the holy temple. He remembers God's presence and character as he looks to the hot spot of God's presence. And as a follower of Jesus, where is the hot spot of God's presence that I look to, to remember who God is to me, even if my life is passing away? And it's Jesus of Nazareth. And so this is so important in these seasons when, because what we want to do is we want to look at our life circumstances and use those as the reliable indicator of how God feels towards me. And what Jonah says Clearly, he's come to the conviction that his circumstances have nothing to do with God's commitment to him, that they are not a reliable indicator of, of God's feelings or commitment to him. We look to one place to understand and discover who God is to me, and that's in the life and in the death and the resurrection of, of Jesus. And becoming a Christian is realizing that his life that was lived for me, his death that was for me and my sin and selfishness and his resurrection life that offers grace and a new chance at life to me, 
That's the only thing I have going for me. That's it. That's it. And when you can come to that place, you, you get to, like where Jonah is, it doesn't matter what happens in your life. I know who I belong to. I know the one in whom my identity is grounded and that regardless of what happens, my life is right there in, in his hands. And so there you go. I can be thankful. You end up with like a story like Acts chapter 16 and you have Paul and Silas and they're in prison because they've been talking to people of about Jesus too much, and they're, they're chained to the floor. It's the middle of the night, and they, they might not live through the night. They could get executed. And what are these two guys doing in the prison cell? What are the other prisoners here and doing? They're singing poetry, little poems to Jesus of gratefulness and praise. You're like, these guys are insane. But there was lots of oxygen in that prison cell. You know? Like they were thinking very clearly and rationally. And they we're of the conviction that my life doesn't belong to me anyway. And so if God deals a severe mercy through this experience, then I trust that he has my best in mind. He's shaping me through this experience. And so he ends up in a place of worship. He, he concludes the prayer. Verse 8, he says, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Or some of your translations, have that second line there is really dense. In Hebrew, some of your translations have they forfeit the grace that could be theirs or they forsake their faithfulness. It's this idea, it's always kind of struck me as funny. Why does he talk about idols right now? He has like squid beaks around him and other fish bones or something. Why does he think of idols? So all I can think is he's, this whole thing was about him wanting to declare his autonomy from God and to chart his own course, independent of God. And so it's almost as if he's, he's coming to this realization like I I, I idolized my own autonomy and my own direction so great that all of a sudden I realized, like, oh my gosh, I forfeited the only thing I had going for me, which was the grace and, and the faithfulness and the mercy of God that is the reason I exist in the first place. And so it's like, it's, oh my gosh, moment. And so it leads him to this act of thankfulness and worship. He says, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, I'll sacrifice to you what I vowed I'll make good. I'll say out loud, salvation comes from Yahweh. I mean, there's no, this is just pure, ecstatic gratefulness and praise. And he's still in the belly of the fish. How is this the word of God to you tonight? And I cannot tell you that. And I, I can't tell you what's happening in your life circumstance and there's some of you, very recently, in this moment, you, you're in, you feel like you're in the belly of the beast. And this prayer invites us to consider that God may be dealing us a severe mercy. And that's a crazy place to be. It's, it's both the best, but feels like the worst thing that could ever happen to us. And it puts you in a, a basic position of trust. Do I trust? that God has my best in mind. And how can you know such a thing? You know, the world's crazy. Life is really hard. And where do you go for assurance that God's commitment is for your best? And as a Christian, I mean, as a community of Jesus, like there's just one place that we point, that we point each other towards, and it's to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And if you belong to him, you can look to the cross and know that you may not be spared being in the belly of the beast 
but God can use that experience to do profound work in our lives that perhaps he could do no other way. And so I don't have the authority to tell you that about your life, but we believe the scriptures do. And so as we go into our time of worship, and I just encourage you to sit with this prayer in front of you, and, you know, some of us, we need to just be ticked off, you know, and frustrated at God. Some of us, you know, we're, we're having the oh my gosh moments of like, dude, I know exactly why I'm in the mess that I'm in. And I need to turn. I need to turn and I need to change and I need to, to look back to God and, and the whole spectrum in between. And so um, I'm going to close us in prayer. And I just encourage you in this time, you know, Jesus said that he's, he's present in a unique way when we gather together. And so uh, I'll just pray and just trust that uh, the Spirit will speak to each of us what we need, what we need to hear. Amen? Amen. Let me close in prayer.